Our scripture reading is found this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. So if you take a moment and open up your Bibles or your phones to that text, Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to uh, go back to chapter 12, I mean verse 12, just to pick up a little bit of context here. But Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 through 23. And if you could please stand as you're able as I read. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the uh, child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in that place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray as we come to this text today. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your mercy. We praise you for your generosity in giving us your word. But Lord, we confess that we desperately need you. And we come expectantly knowing that you speak to us through your word. So I pray that it would be your word that we hear today. I pray that in these moments you would help us to be able to, by your grace, set aside any distractions in our mind or anything that might be burdening us from this past week to focus on your word, your truth, and on your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, over the past handful of recent years, I have had some conversations with my parents about something that I have found very concerning, actually. You see, my parents watch the Hallmark Channel. I have have to give them a hard time because if you've seen one of them, you've seen all of them, right? You know, a little tweak of the location, maybe it's a single mom this time instead of a single dad that had given up on love only to find themselves bumping into their soulmate 
in the grocery store. Or since it's Christmas time, they meet each other at the Christmas tree lot. Or maybe her coffee shop in the Swiss Alps has just gone out of business, and he is there to save the day. You know the drill. They are quite predictable. And you know, if you're honest, sometimes we actually do want a little bit of predictability in this life. Maybe in particularly this Christmas season, you just want to sit down with a good drink on the couch and have your heart warmed by something that is predictable. But if you've been tracking with this Advent series and what Matthew has been writing for us, he's laid out anything but predictability, right? And as we come to today's text, it's no different. This text is a part of the Christmas story, and it's overlooked by many because of the themes of slaughter, running for your life, tears, and backwoods towns, you know? Those don't exactly make great themes for a Christmas classic. Unless, of course, as one of our students, Sam Hopkins, would remind me, you're talking about the Christmas classic Die Hard. (laughs) But this text, as we look at it today, is going to call us over and over. It's going to call us to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And that's not a cliché. In three scenes, we're going to see three prophetic fulfillments and three applications. So in a sense, we're going to go through this text three different times. So let's look first off at three scenes. We're going to see first the flight, verses 12 to 15. And we see that in verse 12 that the Magi had been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod after their time with Jesus, but they departed another way to head home. And after they leave, Joseph gets that middle-of-the-night call, you know, that when the phone rings in the middle of the night, it's usually not anything good. And the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and warns him, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So immediately, underneath this cover of darkness, Joseph gathered up Mary and Jesus and the gifts that the Magi had left for them and they left for Egypt. Now remember, this isn't the first time that an angel has come to visit Joseph. At the end of chapter 1, if you look at the text, we see an angel coming to him to let him know that he should take Mary as his wife because the child within her was from the Holy Spirit and was to be called Jesus. So we see Joseph's faith is being increasingly stretched as he is met by these angels of God, and he follows with obedience even though they get increasingly more difficult in faith. And I find this part of the story so real. You know, I mean, God could have done anything to protect Mary and Joseph. He could have struck Herod down with some sort of plague. He could have blinded the eyes of the men that were going around to kill these boys so that Jesus could be protected. But what does God do? He exalts and actually stresses the importance of the role of the father, whether biological or adoptive, here in this sense, in the protection, nurture, and care of his children. So in a very real and gritty way, and human way, Joseph gets this message to flee to Egypt. Nothing else is told, not where to go in Egypt, 
Not where to work when he's in Egypt, not where to live, just go to Egypt. Flee and take a journey with your young wife and your child that isn't even walking. Now, it was 75 miles to the border and close to 100 more miles that they would have to travel to where they might find a town where they could find some safety. So we find Jesus here with his parents as refugees. And in the second scene, we get a picture of what is taking place at the same time, but behind the palace walls. So scene two is the infanticide. That is the murder of these boys. You know, in this season, we uh, celebrate the coming of Jesus, and we like to hear those words, joy and peace and hope, and rightly so, because Jesus does bring those things. But in this Christmas story, we see slaughter, we see flight, we see brutality, and no carols actually use those words. But those are the things that we see at the coming of Jesus as well. And while the Magi have gone to worship Jesus, Herod has been fuming. And he's in Bethlehem, well, he's in the city, and they're in Bethlehem, only about five miles south. And it gives, Herod gives it a day or so, and when the Magi have not returned, he realized that he has been tricked by these wise men. And we see in verse 16 that he became furious. Now, the Greek word that is used here actually describes someone who is drunk with anger. This anger was within him, and it was absolutely uncontrollable. That's the picture that we have here. So he sends people to kill all of the male children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding areas. He remembers the approximate age of what Jesus might have been, and he rounds it up just to make sure that his bases are covered, and he says, kill all the males that are two years and younger. And that should take care of this new king. This probably would have been about 20 or 30 boys as we look at the population of the region and make some educated guesses. And this is absolutely terrible, but it's typical for Herod. It actually would have been a blip on the radar in comparison to some of the things that he did. This is the guy that killed his favorite wife. Yeah, I said favorite wife. He killed three of his sons, And then he made an order that upon his death, a large group of people needed to be murdered so it would appear that a lot of people were mourning for his death. Thankfully, that order was not carried out upon his death. But do you see what's going on here? Matthew is letting us know that the coming of Jesus brings hostility. As Paul said in Romans 8, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. You know, Mary Elizabeth Coleridge penned this poem. I saw a stable, low and very bare, a little child in a manger. The oxen knew him, had him in their care. To men he was a stranger. The safety of the world was lying there and the world's danger. You know, we want to choose for ourselves. We, especially in the West, highlight the fact that we can choose our own path and pave our own way. We want to be kings of our life, and in steps Jesus, who calls us to love him and love others more than ourselves, to trust and follow him rather than to make our own way. Jackie Hill Perry, an author and speaker and spoken word artist, tweeted this past week, to tell God that you love him and it be true is a miracle. Why? Because we're hostile to God. 
You see, we all have some of Herod, at least some of Herod in our own heart. Someone has come to dethrone us, and we don't like it one bit. No matter where we are with Jesus, we still have some resistance in our hearts that calls us out of ourselves to serve one another, that calls us out of ourselves to love others and count others as more important than ourselves and to follow his path, even though that path is very narrow. Now, maybe you've been a Christ follower for years and years, but you have to admit that even though it might be just a little bit, there's some of Herod's heart in yours. As John Newton said, all it takes to destroy my prayer life is the buzzing of a fly. We're all just scratching the surface, though, here as we come to this text. And look how much Matthew has for us. But let's move quickly to scene 3 in verses 19 to 23. Scene 3, we see the return. So Herod dies, and an angel comes to Joseph again in a dream and says, Herod is dead, so it's cool now for you to take Mary and Jesus back to Israel. So Joseph obeys, and he heads back toward Israel, the land of Israel. But somewhere along the way, he hears that Herod's son, Archelaus, is in power. And this guy, Archelaus, was actually worse than his father. He came to power at about 19 years of age, I believe. And in his two years, he only ruled two years because he was deemed an incompetent ruler. In those two years, he actually surpassed his father in bloodiness and violence. So an angel comes again to Joseph, and actually I'm beginning to think here that since Joseph married Mary, he's not getting any good night's sleep, right? So Joseph uh, goes to an area of Galilee, and they live in a city called Nazareth. And it appears from the Gospels that this town was where Jesus lived for actually most of his earthly life. Nazareth was what we would call a podunk, backwater, nothing of a town. And in fact, in John chapter 1, you see a conversation between Philip and Nathaniel. And Philip says, Nate, you have to come and see this guy, Jesus. His teaching is amazing. And Nate says, really, where is this guy from? And Philip says, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response is this, can anything good come from Nazareth? All right, so those are the three scenes. Remember, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And if you remember from our look at the genealogy in chapter 1, Jewish authors and readers, it's, it's all about the story. It's all about discovery and connection with that story. And that's what he does here as he highlights these things for the readers and actually for us. So let's look secondly at three prophetic fulfillments, and we're going to go back through the text again. First, we see the Exodus, and we see that in verse 15. Now, this one comes at the end of scene one, and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this prophecy is found in Hosea 11, chapter one, and in addition to Jesus being the one to fulfill this prophecy, it would have brought to mind, actually, several stories and images in the minds of those original readers. Now, Matthew isn't thumbing through the Old Testament, just feverishly looking for some proof texts that Jesus might somehow fulfill. He is seeing the whole story, the big picture of this story and of this nation Israel who is called my son in that text. And it's a story that he sees is all about Jesus, the true son. More on that in just a moment. But what are some of these images that would have come to mind 
For the original reader, they would have had these images of slavery, of oppression, of chains, of the requirement to make bricks without enough material, about the inability to be able to worship their God. And this is what they had to go through as slaves in Egypt. But God delivered them to fulfill his covenant promise to them. Second fulfilled prophecy. Exile. We see this in verses 17 to 18. At the end of scene 2, Matthew writes, Then what was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now this prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. And when he speaks of Rachel, he is speaking of that matriarch the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. But remember, she died while giving birth to Benjamin. And because of this, she was known as the sorrowful mother of the Old Testament. And the rabbis called her this, in fact, the mother of Israel for all time. And this word, Ramah, is likely where Rachel was buried. So the prophet Jeremiah at one point was held with many others as a prisoner in Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem. Now this is the town through which God's people were marched, having been captured by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. It's about this event that Jeremiah writes as if the mother of Israel were alive in her tomb, watching and weeping for her children as they walked off through this town to captivity right before her eyes. And remember, they're being marched off to captivity because of their continued disobedience to God. God allowed this to happen to get their attention and as a punishment for sin. So Matthew is connecting the tears of Rachel and the tears of these moms that have lost their sons due to Herod. And he's tying it into the story of Jesus somehow. But hang tight. We'll see that in just a minute. It's really awesome. Prophecy number three. We see it in scene three, and we see Nazareth, verse 23. In this scene, we have this reference to the town of Nazareth. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, our first two fulfillments came specifically from a particular prophet. And we can see those prophecies as we go back into the Old Testament. But Matthew says here, if you look at the text, spoken by the prophets, plural. But get this, we don't see this specifically stated anywhere in the Old Testament. But that's not a problem, because what Matthew is doing is he's compiling a general teaching of the prophets, and it seems as though several prophets have made this prediction, even though we don't see it anywhere in the Old Testament that we have. Nazareth is about 55 miles north of Jerusalem in Galilee, and many of the people of Nazareth were crude and violent. In fact, that term Nazarene had for a long time been a way to verbally trash someone and was used to describe someone that was rough and rude. But it was a town that was home to both Jews and Gentiles. That's why we saw Nathaniel ask, what, can, what good can come out of Nazareth? Now hold on to that thought as we come to our final point. We've had the three uh, applications here, where these three scenes and these three fulfilled prophecies will all get tied into what Matthew is teaching us about Jesus.
and he uses them to call us to look to Jesus. So let's look at the three applications. The first in verse 15, Jesus is our rescue. Remember scene one, the exodus. Check the connections here, okay? God's people were oppressed slaves and set free to the covenant of blessing in the promised land. They were led out by one who was also spared from infanticide. They were rescued from a tyrant who was ruining their lives into the covenant promise, a place of provision. The final plague that led to their deliverance was marked by the shedding of the blood of a lamb, a perfect and spotless lamb, and it was placed over the tops of the doors as a covering for the household. And on that night, they weren't delivered because they were Israelites, but they were delivered because in faith they had placed the blood of the spotless lamb above their doorposts. You see what Matthew is doing here? The Jews, just like us, have hearts just like Herod that want to be king. And Matthew is telling us that we need another exodus. We need a greater exodus that takes us from death unto life. And with all of these images and prophecies fulfilled, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is that greater Moses that leads us out of oppression and frees us from the chains of sin by the shedding of the blood of the spotless lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. I think it was last week we had that special music, Deliver Us, by Andrew Peterson. Here again these lyrics. Our enemy, our captor, is no pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud nor brick nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains. Yet, Lord, we're bound Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Deliver us, deliver us, O Yahweh, hear our cry, and gather us between your knee, uh, beneath your wings tonight. And he says, our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. Our shackles, they were made with our own hands. Our toil is our atonement and our freedom yours to give. So Yahweh, break this silence if you can. Matthew is saying, when you picture the Exodus, picture Jesus, your true rescue. God's son comes out of Egypt and is the only true son who obeys the father perfectly, earning that blessing. But he doesn't get that blessing. You see, instead he gets a crown of thorns and a death on a cross, fully drinking the cup of God's wrath as it is poured out on him for our sin. He became sin for us so that his perfection and the blessing that he deserved could be ours. Our deserved punishment, our deserved death, he took it all. And he passed that perfect standing to us. So before the Father, we can actually receive that covenant blessing. And it's ours. It's ours as we come to Jesus in faith. But we still look for rescue in other places, don't we? Matthew reminds us that we cannot find it in national, ethnic, or groups, or a group identity. It isn't some political party or some social construct or even a church 
This rescue is in Christ alone. Nothing else. So do you see the, the beauty of what Matthew is doing here? And we're just scratching the surface of this text. But more so, look at the beauty of Jesus, our only rescue. So secondly, in scene two, we see that second prophecy that is fulfilled. So we have a second application. Jesus, our hope. And we see that in verses 17 to 18. Now, why were these people of God being led off into captivity? They were a people that had known God and they had tasted God's blessing, yet they had fallen away. They had turned to other gods, they had turned to worship other things and to find their satisfaction in these other things, which we're told by Jeremiah are broken cisterns. So they're led off to captivity. And what is Matthew doing here? He's showing us that with Jesus, the trail of tears is finally coming to an end. Listen to these words from Jeremiah, and they're found just after that passage that he, he quotes here in Matthew. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Why? Because you will finally come back from the land of the enemy, and you will serve the Lord your God. Matthew is saying the exile is over with the coming of Jesus. And that was hinted to at the end of the genealogy. Remember in verse 17 it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. You know, Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation. Also read here the word exile for those who are in Christ Jesus. In our sorrow and in our tears over sin, they are wiped away with the reminder of who we truly are in Christ Jesus. And they push our hearts forward to that day, that final day of restoration, when all of the things, all of the shed tears, the one who shed tears of blood will wipe away all of our tears. Remember this quote from Tolkien. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. One day. See, Jesus is our hope, and Matthew wants us to see that greater story, that Jesus is our only rescue and Jesus is our only hope. So finally, and in closing, we come to that third scene and the third fulfilled prophecy. In verse 23, we see that Jesus is our humility. Look at verse 23. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that which was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this town of Nazareth was settled by a remnant of Israel who was actually returning from the exile. They were from David's line, and they gave their new settlement a messianic title. That means a name after the promised Messiah. You see, in Hebrew, this word neser 
is what made up the name Nazareth. And that word Nesser means branch. We see this actually in Isaiah 11, verse 1. There will come forth a shoot or a branch from the stump of Jesse. Maybe some of you are going through the Jesse tree in this Advent season. This is the passage right here. Then one verse later, it says, or one verse before, it says, Of him the nations shall inquire. Now, it's an interesting play on words that happens here. But more obviously, it's the type of place to which Jesus came and grew up. Remember all the details that we mentioned previously about Nazareth, of what people thought about others from that area? You know, one author actually said that Nazareth was Gentile infested. That's the way he described it. All of this points to Christ's humility. And those to whom he came to save, the refugee, the outcast, the outsider, the nations, not just the nation of Israel. See, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Think about it. The king of kings, as we looked at last week from Kurt, was born in a cattle stall and placed in a manger. His family tree was filled with rotten fruit. And later in Matthew, we see that the foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests in which to sleep, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And in Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And what Matthew wants us to see here is that this branch of Jesse is our humility. He humbled himself by putting on flesh. He humbled himself in death so that we would not be humbled by our own sin. We would not be brought down, finally, by our own sin. It is his humility, though, that frees us from pride so that we, like him, might value others as more important than ourselves, looking not out for our own interests but for the interests of others. We see this very clearly in Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root, see that again, out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our offering of suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, smitten and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And Isaiah ends the text with, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This text calls us to look to Jesus.
because he is our rescue, he is our hope, and he is our humility. Why do we continue to look elsewhere? He's right here. May we come to him and cling to him by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this story amidst the horrendous nature of it. As is often said, we see beauty rise from ashes. And Lord, help us. May this word continue to churn in our hearts so that we might see the beauty of Jesus today. Help us to look to him. Help us to taste and see that you are good because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are any of us that do not yet know Jesus Christ, that have not turned to him in faith, that are not trusting in his perfect life and death and resurrection for us, Lord, we pray that today might be the day where you soften hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh so that there might be much rejoicing in heaven on earth over one who was lost and is now found. But Father, for those of us that claim Christ, help us to continue to look. Give us the grace by the power of your Spirit to continue to destroy the weeds in our life that might cover our eyes from seeing him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.